those of you who were locked outside of the convention hall in 1968, those of you who can now vote for the first time, those of you who agree with me that the institutions of this country belong to all of the people who inhabit it, those of you who have been neglected, left out, ignored, forgotten, or shunned aside for whatever reason, give me your help at this hour. Join me in an effort to reshape our society and regain control of our destiny as we go down the Chisholm Trail for 1970. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was Representative Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress, as she declared her historic candidacy as the first black candidate to ever run for a major party's nomination for president of the United States. I'm Jason Franklin, senior advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, October 5th. Moving from 1972 to today, I'm keeping my eye on ongoing debates in Congress about the debt ceiling, infrastructure bills, and the Freedom to Vote Act, as well as we'll talk a little bit about some of the new bubbling issues that are emerging that'll kind of play out in the coming weeks. But the big focus this week is the Friday deadline set by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to pass an increase in the debt ceiling. It's all but certain the Democrats will need to use the budget reconciliation process because there is no Republican support. Even though Biden has called these Republican tactics reckless, so far, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell seems to believe the voters will punish Democrats for any economic chaos surrounding the debt ceiling, given the control of Congress and the White House by Democrats. Now, part of it, people keep wondering, will McConnell shift? Will the Republicans come around? But it's been pointed out, historically, McConnell has tied policy demands to each debt ceiling increase debate he's been involved in, but he's yet to make any demands this time around, leading most insiders to believe he'll force Democrats to go it alone. The big questions instead are about how far out will they push the next debt ceiling increase date as tied to calculations of who will be in power and how that trigger can be used for future negotiations. And if Democrats can raise it in time to prevent an increase in both government and consumer borrowing costs, which happened during the debt ceiling fight in 2011. While there's a game of brinkmanship being played right now, Almost everyone expects that we will see this get passed this week to avoid a collapse. A lot of grandstanding around it, a lot of negotiation, but a critical deadline that they do have the ability to meet. Following a close second in things we're watching is uh, the state of national governments, the ongoing drama to pass both the infrastructure bill and the social and climate spending package. Most observers, myself included to be honest, expected progressive Democrats in the House to agree to pass the infrastructure bill last week, possibly with some type of, frankly, likely powerless promises for action on the spending package. But instead, the Congressional Progressive Caucus held firm to keeping the two bills tied together, and Biden ultimately sided with progressives on this front. So it was a big win for progressives that now have almost half of the votes of the Democratic Caucus in the House. However, the administration also indicated its willingness to lower the social and climate spending package to around two to two and a half trillion versus the previous 3.5 trillion in a big win for moderates. And this is the back and forth. How big can we go? How small do we have to get to pass it? The Democrats are now gonna to try to pass both the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and 
a investment in social programs somewhere in that two to 3.5 trillion, a huge range by the end of October. While there's cautious optimism because of some recent progress and they're kind of getting closer and getting closer, there's still no deal being struck. Biden shifting his strategy now to selling this budget plan by traveling the US and courting moderate Democrats. Today, for example, he's here in Michigan visiting a union training center in Howell with Democratic Representative Alyssa Slotkin. She's urged him to promote his proposals more aggressively to the public and has said she's willing to vote yes on the social and climate package if it's brought down to a fiscally reasonable level. So that expect more of that type of kind of moderation and negotiation in the coming days um, and throughout the rest of this month. And as we talked about last week, close third to these two kind of more finance-oriented uh, bills and even more central to our focus on democracy is the ongoing drama about passing the Freedom to Vote Act. Manchin this week seemed to indicate openness to some type of workaround as he pointed to budget reconciliation as one way Democrats move beyond the filibuster. If he's open to a democracy reconciliation or some other tweak or adjustment, that could be a major breakthrough for passing this critical piece of national voting rights legislation. But every statement from the key players in this drama is being analyzed and broken apart, so I wouldn't put too much hope into that one statement. Good sign, but we're far from there. In terms of impact of this bill and the state voter suppression and redistricting work that's happening, one thing that has been coming into focus is the overall approach Republicans appear to be taking on redistricting. In Texas and many other Republican-controlled states, it looks like the focus is more on solidifying a solid but slim majority of Republicans in Congress rather than aggressively trying to expand the map, but perhaps leaving those maps more vulnerable to judicial reversal or demographic changes in the coming decade. That's what happened last time. Ten years ago, Republicans drew very aggressive maps, and in several key states like Pennsylvania, lawsuits ultimately forced those maps to be redrawn. So rather than drawing many slim majority Republican districts and trying to even do a very intensive partisan gerrymandering, they're drawing slightly fewer Republican districts, but making them more solidly Republican. One of the side effects is that if that pattern stands for this next decade, it will likely strengthen the far right wing of the Republican Party as it makes primaries more critical in many places than general elections. And of course, if the Freedom to Vote Act gets passed, most of these maps anyway will have to be redrawn as partisan gerrymandering would be prohibited. So still keeping our eye on it, there's a big push to try to get this passed this month because the arguments about, as I talked about last week, redrawing maps get harder and harder the closer you get to an election. Other things bubbling that will come into closer focus in the coming weeks. First, the U.S. Supreme Court is going into its new term. They're hearing in-person oral arguments for the first time since the pandemic. Although Justice Kavanaugh, who tested positive for COVID-19 over the weekend, is going to be calling in. They're hearing many controversial cases, from abortion to gun control. And the big question everyone has is, will this now very solidly conservative court take some lurching steps to the right? Or will we expect a bunch of smaller shifts? We likely will see a set of conservative decisions coming down one way or the other. The big question is, how big will they be? Will they reverse Roe v. Wade? Will they make other big changes? Or will they continue to kind of chip away at liberal wins? We also saw Rudy Giuliani now got reporting coming out that he admitted under oath 
that his evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election largely came from unvetted posts on Facebook and other social media platforms. He's also arguing that insiders were trying to subvert the Trump campaign and plant evidence to get lead him astray. So you're seeing a lot of new information come out and it's the slow but inexorable finding of fact versus hyperbole from the last election grinds its way through the courts. We also saw the first articles from the Pandora Papers drop this week. A vast trove of documents about how the wealthy around the world hide their funds in offshore accounts. This first set of articles were mostly focused on non-U.S. targets like King Abdul of Jordan. But future articles in the coming days are likely to spark more domestic debates as some American billionaires and celebrities who've shielded their wealth will end up being the focus of new articles and expect a lot of conversation around the tax havens of South Dakota and Nevada in particular getting more coverage. So these have been quiet issues that most people in the public don't pay attention to, but South Dakota and Nevada are now some of the strongest tax havens in the entire world and expect this to be another round of conversation around economic elitism and inequality. So those are some things I'm kind of looking at this week and looking forward into the future. Thanks for joining me for this quick review. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, October 5th. And thank you for listening to 10 Minutes on Democracy.